0: Hello, and welcome to the Pharma Forum podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. The promise of AI and pharma is sprouting up across the business, from marketing to manufacturing to R&D. But one of the most game-changing areas, and one in which we've seen billions of dollars of investment, is drug discovery. Accenture is one of the first companies to make a mark in this space, and one which has partnerships with BMS and Sanofi, among others. And its CEO, Andrew Hopkins, has been named as a top AI innovator by Fortune and Time. Welcome to the show, Andrew, and tell me a little bit about yourself and Accenture.
1: Thank you, Jonah. Absolute pleasure to be here today. So I'm the founder, chief executive, uh, as we say in the UK, the CEO of Accenture. My background actually is uh, obviously as a scientist. Uh, From the age of 16, actually, I was working in labs, even in steelworks uh, near where I work, which was lucky enough to uh, sponsor me. Uh, to go to university. So I was um, always actually prided on myself as a scientist first, sort of businessman uh, second. And uh, the key to have, um, uh, what's sort of been driving us really has always been a constant sort of interest a curiosity. And um, and it actually sparked him from my sort of uh, early days in Manchester doing my sort of uh, undergraduate work in computational chemistry, seeing that there's this sort of exciting new world being developed of how sort of computers and drugs, you know, start to uh, intersect. And that led then to um, actually sort of doing a PhD, or DPhil, as we like to call it, in Oxford, in sort of structure-based drug design, uh, particularly focused on HIV at the time. And you got to say, I really got the bug, and I really got uh, interested in what I would call, you know, pharmaceutical sciences, you know, drug discovery. I think almost like a, a liberal science, you know. It's, uh, you heard of the liberal arts, you know, have, uh, you know, have to study economics, literature, philosophy, etc., you know, I think the world of drug discovery is like the liberal sciences. You know, you really need a deep background in chemistry, biology, medicine, and also understanding the economics of it these days as you move into business. And that actually, I think, it really played to my mind. And uh, it was actually back in my PhD days, I came up with the first ideas of thinking about how we could better improve the way we did computational design and how basically we could democratize it. And that idea really stayed with me, actually, almost for the next 20 years. Uh, And eventually, when we did found Accenture, I felt that uh, everything we'd done had been sort of laying the foundations, you know, in in like in 2006, when I was at Pfizer, we we published, I think, one of the very first papers showing large scale machine learning uh, applied to pharmaceutical data Uh, that was in Nature Biotech. And then uh, when I moved to uh, University of Dundee, uh, when I was lucky enough to become a professor there, that allowed us then to publish actually what became the sort of foundational algorithms for Accenture, which is actually then a uh, paper in Nature, which I think was one of the first algorithms that really showed how new IP, new drug design could be generated using, you know, generative algorithmic uh, machine learning methods. And that really allowed us then to sort of follow this idea. How can we improve upon the way we do drug discovery? And that's been almost like a North Star in my career, actually, in, in thinking about how do we actually solve drug discovery as a science, you know?
0: So in really broad strokes, tell me a little bit about how how we've historically done drug discovery, what AI is able to bring to that process, and and what are some of the particular innovations that Accentia has really brought forward in terms of, of changing that status quo?
1: That's a really good way of setting the question, Jonah. So um if you remember when I was first sort of actually synthesizing some of the drugs I designed to my PhD, you know, we actually went to, uh, did a collaboration with Glaxo Welcome. So went some, spent some time out there in the lab and, um, and if, in some senses drug discovery hasn't changed much in some aspects in nearly 30 years, actually, you know, what do we often do in the classic drug hunting? Even if you go back to Paul Janssen and James Black, you know, we, we'd often start off with discovering a hit molecule, um, uh, Sometimes that's from a natural product and some, or natural substrate. Sometimes it's from a large high throughput screen. You know, sometimes people look into the literature, see what else other people are doing. Sometimes it is entirely knowledge based and based on de novo, which is now even more possible these days. And um, of course, the difference between having a ligand that binds to a protein and a drug is a huge, huge difference in terms of optimizing all of the properties. You know, that we need to define. You know, what's going to make it safe? Going to make it selective? going to make a drug uh, be dosed in a tolerable fashion to the patient. So in many ways, we have dozens and dozens of properties we then need to optimize. And this process of navigating this optimization space very much has been the sort of a domain of a medicinal chemist, you know, in, in really understanding the design, understanding the processes and the data and it's often been sort of a manual process to some degree. Even if we're using computers, we're using computers often as sort of ways of ideating, ways of visualizing. But it's actually been left to sort of a human imagination, a human creativity to think about what to make next. What is the data telling me? And it's often been even sketching things out on whiteboards, Um, you know, thinking about how then we're going to synthesize those compounds. But this process then, this process of iterative optimization often can take several years. Often can mean the design and synthesis sometimes of thousands of analogues and molecules as we slowly mix step-by-step step, move towards the end goal of hopefully discovering a drug candidate. It was this process, actually, that I looked at and thought there must be a better way, actually, of how we could think about designing drugs. But at the same time, how do we capture the essence of that human creativity, even that human design process? Because in many ways, even though the medicinal chemist still might make, you know, several hundred, several few thousand sometimes analogs in a project as we're optimizing. But actually, if you compare that to the possible chemical space they might be exploring, actually, we've done a pretty good job already of actually reducing that down actually to explore that space. So let's not forget, the starting point of uh, the creativity and skill of a drug hunter is all very very high. So we wanted to understand is how we could mimic that, actually. Because when we look at the process of, you know, drug design and drug creation in a pharmaceutical industry, it's very much a process of understanding data and decision-making. So the management guru, Peter Drucker, calls the pharmaceutical industry an information industry. And that's exactly how I see it. It's, it's an industry where data and decisions are our currency. So in that sense, we started to think, actually, could we use then modern machine learning techniques and artificial intelligence to actually help us in this creative process? When we first started on this, which was actually back in 2007, when I first became a professor at uh, Dundee, uh, along then with my uh, uh, PhD student who joined me a bit later, Jeremy Besnard and my postdoc, Richard Biggerton, uh, both who were still with Accenture as, uh, you know, employees number one and two, so to say, um, it allowed us then to really explore this problem of asking the question, how could we mimic that creative process of drug design? And in those days, actually, the way we approached it um, was a combination of thinking about uh, Bayesian sort of statistics and Bayesian sort of machine learning modeling, combined then with things like sort of evolutionary computing, actually. This is sort of a first generation sort of 1.0 of Accenture algorithms. And that was important to us because actually, that came from a point where um, we thought actually what was an interesting sort of approach to sort of mimic creativity was actually sort of evolutionary processes. It's, it's, it allows us to sort of explore the space and at the same time provide selection pressure for our models to understand, select the best sort of uh, um, designs to move forward with. And we found that to be an incredibly powerful algorithm, actually. And it allowed us then to really show that we could very successfully design against a large number of potential objectives. Uh, using, you know, very large, you know, Bayesian models against, you know, hundreds if not thousands of potential sort of protein endpoints that we used using newly available public data that became available from databases like Kemble, which is absolutely foundational to the field we're in today. This allowed us then to really start to demonstrate that this creative process of drug design actually could start to be reduced down to an algorithmic process. We could start to think now how a combination of machine learning could actually do something creative. And when we first published this back in 2012, you know, this is uh, over a decade before we have things like ChatGDP and DALI and the generative process we have now. And I think it was probably one of the first examples to show in that machine learning approaches actually could do something creative and you could design algorithms actually to create a creative output. And for us in drug discovery, the creative output is the design of a molecule and the intellectual property that it encapsulates. Of course, since then, Accenture has grown far beyond, you know, those first algorithms. Uh, We now look at the entire process, actually, what we're trying to do from target selection to drug design to patient selection, and how we create an AI-first end-to-end process, actually, of drug creation, Um, bringing in a a huge number of additional technologies, uh, whether it's now reinforcement learning, whether it's uh, now also sort of uh, other generative processes, how now we can also include physics-based methods, actually, in that process and part of our sort of predictive methodologies. And also now how we can apply, you know, deep learning approaches to help us identify the right patient selection as well, which I can talk more about later. So that's been sort of the intellectual sort of evolution of of Accenture. And it's always been based on asking, can we do something creative actually with the new algorithms that we're developing?
0: So a lot of really interesting things there. One I want to kind of zoom in on is, is this idea that it was based on the human creative process, it's, it's not, you know, let's do something completely different with an AI. It's how can an AI do what human drug discoverers have done, but better, faster, more comprehensively. Is that, would you say that's
1: accurate? That is the, where the, sort of the first generation of technologies came from. You know, we were inspired by the, um, uh, the process of human creativity and how potentially that could be mimicked, actually. Yeah, so that's that's a good way of uh, of framing it, Jonah. yeah.
0: but then as it's grown, has it been more a matter of sort of, uh, I mean, not brute forcing certainly, but these these evolutionary um, computing methods have kind of made it into its own thing.
1: Yes, the way we move in for towards now is also to realize that what are the other creative attributes that a drug hunter's bring, you know, to to the project, and as we have now, you know, run you know, multiple successful projects now brought drugs into the clinic. You now see that drug discovery is not defined by one algorithm. In fact, what we see now as uh, some of the key new areas to explore into is how we also really understand what I would call the strategy of drug discovery. This is what sort of the, um, the real sort of skilled medicinal chemists actually bring to a project. It's really understanding uh, how could you short circuit and shortcut you know, particular strategies to understand a problem that you're trying to solve. This is a really interesting sort of problem in defining it. It's defining then ultimately how uh, AIs themselves actually start to write the workflows, you know, and allows us then to really understand how you implement that into the strategic thinking. But it also means, um, I would say, thinking about how we use AI and machine learning to go sort of deeper into a problem. You know, one of the big problems we face ultimately is the time it takes for data to be returned back to the designer. You know, we have to go make the compounds, we have to go test them, et cetera. Uh, these are often done with contract search organizations. We actually do a lot of biological screening in-house at Xentia. Nearly 40% of our staff are laboratory-based. And so we've then started to think about that the next frontier as well is also the integration of sort of AI design with AI embedded into our screening processes. And this actually also led us to, to, to really important concepts, actually, to, to allow us then to think about it's not just sort of a design problem that we're trying to solve, actually. And I think actually molecular generative methods, actually, that we've now got, I think are very comprehensive in allowing us actually to explore design space and select from it. Actually, the really important question is almost the select problem, you know, and which, which question we like to ask is, you know, we, we could only really want to make and test maybe 20 compounds in each sort of design cycle. And we want to make as few compounds as possible. Actually, Accenture actually prides itself on how few molecules we can make and test before we identify a drug candidate. You know, and I think uh, I think probably you know our CDK seven and PKC feta programs are probably the advanced I think they were you know less than one hundred and fifty molecules, novel molecules made and tested, over to design was the drug candidates that are now in clinical testing. And so, uh, and compare that to the, I think the industry average, actually, the industry benchmarks is often about two and a half thousand novel molecules being made and tested in a project. So, so the question is, how do we end up making 90% sort of fewer compounds? And the other sort of uh, big insight come was when we started to explore the maths around uh, an idea called active learning, you know, and this was, um, this is a very interesting sort of idea. We started to explore this with some of our early collaborations of a company called uh, Synovian, actually who was only using phenotypic data. We were only using data that we gathered from video images of mice, you know, being exposed to different CNS drugs and sort of uh, different behavioral properties. So we didn't even know what the drug target was or, or anything like that. So how do you build models on such data? And how do you optimize against such data? And that really allowed us to really challenge ourselves. And that led to a lot of developments in, uh, in, in active learning, which has become a, a, another core concept, actually, in really trying to think about what drug discovery is. So we think of drug discovery not as a screening problem. It's not about how big a library can we screen, whether it's a big HTS deck, or whether it's a sort of a DNA-encoded library. It's actually a learning problem. No matter where we start, we never have enough information. You know, where we st- is there a brand new first-in-class target that no one's ever drugged before? Or whether or not actually you're trying to find a truly differentiated molecule in a, in a well-known but crowded uh, uh, pattern space? around a particular drug target it's actually understanding how do you learn your way so for us actually we think of speed of learning as one of the key metrics and that's why for us actually concepts like active learning concepts like how do we automate more of our laboratory experiments actually to improve those uh, um, design cycles and increase the speed of learning these are sort of key concepts that Accentia deals with that we think about very deeply
0: so you are not the only company in this space. I think you're one of the earlier entrants. Um, certainly it's heated up lately and AI has been uh, something everybody wants to be involved in and invest in. Um, how do you kind of stay differentiated? How do you learn from your competition? And, and tell me a little bit about kind of what that experience has been like in terms of being in kind of an increasingly competitive market for offering pharma companies, these these AI-powered drug discovery services?
1: When we started, I I think we were the very first company actually formed in this whole space. And this was really considered to be sort of a, uh, you know, a bit of a far-out idea, actually, that, uh, you know, algorithms, machine learning, AI could do something as creative as drug design. And, um, you know, so we had to find sort of our first, what I would call vanguard customers, the people who are as crazy as you and just as... Uh, dissatisfied with the current sort of situation to try to then uh, want to do something different so that's an important sort of element when developing a a new technology that's really a sort of a in a in a completely white space compared to where the current sort of state of the art is. So um, as the field has now moved on and I have to say I think the whole team is incredibly proud as well it's not just what Accenti has done but I think we've actually really been at a vanguard of changing the industry. As you said, there's a lot of new companies now, uh, some of them now quite well established, uh, lots of new sort of startups moving into the space. I think we've now proven out the idea that AI is going to be an important way of how drugs are going to be designed and developed in future. The way we think about it is that, you know, AI, you know, won't necessarily replace drug hunters, but drug hunters using AI will replace drug hunters who don't. And so I think um, now we believe we won that battle intellectually, which was actually not an easy battle to win over the past 10 years. I think we have really had to obviously do it with data, showing now what's possible, showing that molecules can now uh, get into clinical trials, showing what's possible and increase sort of uh, efficiency and productivity. I think we now have multiple proof points about how that is possible. And that's evidence-based now, is, I think, has is, is really accelerated interest in the field, both, you know, from VCs, from other entrepreneurs, and obviously from a Big Pharma itself. The way we stay ahead of it, I think, is by actually staying close to our true north. You know, our true north is to actually see this as a scientific problem. Our goal as a company is to solve drug di- drug discovery as a scientific problem, as a method. And also then it takes us then, as we start to explore that, into sort of multiple new avenues as we then build out this concept of an AI-first, end-to-end driven process. So it's not a case of developing sort of one technology and then just adding it to an existing sort of pharmaceutical R&D process. I don't think you necessarily get the advantages of that. And in fact, all the evidence suggests over the past 20 years, we have greater, more efficient, better technologies than we've ever had in terms of innovation. And yet, at the same time, we've also seen pharmaceutical R&D has probably got worse. So adding individual new technologies hasn't necessarily improved a problem. Some senses, it might have made a problem worse. By now, we've got cognitive overload because so much more data we now need to deal with. The key to it, actually, is by looking at it and thinking about how could we create new processes? How could we create new AI-driven processes? And um, this has allowed Exente event to really expand from sort of the core of sort of drug design initially It's now thinking about how we can think about target selection, think about patient selection, and also think about sort of clinical trial design. So the way Xenity is going now is that we have an overarching philosophy in our technology. We call this model-driven adaptive design. And this idea of adaptive design is what we apply in discovery when we think about, you know, discovering and creating new molecules. But it's also what we apply in a clinic as we think about, you know, simulating our clinical trials, as we think about designing adaptive Bayesian clinical trials. And so it's really interesting, I think, now rather than just being a company with sort of one algorithm and then we apply it and then the rest of the processes are pretty standard, we want to be a company that actually has one overarching sort of philosophy. And we see how that sort of technology philosophy actually can help us from the ideation of which projects to work on all the way through to clinical proof of concept. And I, I think that makes Accenture unique, actually, in having this overarching technological philosophy of what we're doing. And it keeps pushing us into new areas. As I said, it pushes us into new areas like thinking about clinical trial design, pushes us into new areas like thinking about, you know, laboratory experimental automation driven by AI to really improve our design make test cycles. I think this is how Accenture stays ahead of the game. But it's also, and always, by sticking to our North Star, heading towards what we're really trying to do, which is actually to solve drug discovery as a scientific problem.
0: That's a really interesting idea. It's when you think about the way, the speed at which technology is advancing right now, especially in this field, you can't build a technology company on a single technology anymore and expect to continue to be relevant into the future. You really have to build on that philosophy of innovation and always be sort of iterating with the needs of the industry and the, and the new technologies as they kind of emerge.
1: Jonah, you're absolutely right. I think the strategically, I think one of the best things Accenture did was engage with customers almost from day one. And what we learned then was how do we test for technologies out in a real world? You know, what are not just the theoretical problems we would encounter, but what are the real problems? How do they perform, et cetera? And had real feedback, you know, from, from our partners, and from running real projects, has been instrumental. You know, I call it sort of, you know, innovating at the coalface. And uh, facing real problems um, is the only way really to prove out a technology.
0: So... I'm to shift gears just a little bit to talk about you, actually, uh, parallel to Accenture's journey. Um, you've recently been recognized as a top AI innovator by Fortune and by Time, and you were recently appointed a Lifetime Fellow to both the Royal Society and the Academy of Medical Sciences. So you've really um, sort of been recognized as a thought leader in AI at a moment where AI is absolutely kind of undergoing a paradigm shift how do you think about kind of what your responsibilities are there? And when you have a, a platform, um, you know, to really weigh in on this transformational moment, what are you think of as sort of your your priorities?
1: Uh, Joan, I have to say, it's a real honor actually to be recognized uh, in this way. Um, and It's really a recognition of what the company is doing and what the company has done actually over the past decade. I think in really being the pioneer, of thinking about how AI can be applied to um, drug discovery and drug development in the pharmaceutical space. So I think actually Accenture, it's, it's, um, I have to say, you know, I am, I am personally you know, incredibly honoured and humbled, actually. And I'm going back to um, when I was doing my D here at Oxford. I remember the day my PhD supervisor got his sort of fellowship with Royal society. It was called an FRS. And it was a big day, you know, and I've been thinking one day, you know, that'll be me perhaps, and I'll love to get it. And Because uh, as a UK-based scientist, it's uh, it's probably it's the highest honour one can receive, actually. So that's, uh, and I think it's a it's a testament, actually, to the quality of science that Accenture has been pursuing and the innovation now being recognised. Uh, also being recognised across the industry, Accentia has won uh, two pre-Galons over the past two years uh, for digital health. So we are incredibly excited, actually, that we've, we have this external validation now about what the company has been developing all this time. In terms of responsibility, um, there's been a lot of discussion recently, as you know, here in the UK, particularly we've had uh, uh, summits, you know, bringing the great and the good together of AI and politics to think about, you know, whether or not AI needs to be regulated. And um, the way I think about it is, We also got to be very careful in that space. You know, pharmaceutical industry is a good example, actually, of, I think, a well-regulated industry and for very good reason. And in fact, everything we're developing, you know, whether it's the drugs we develop or whether or not some of the new digital diagnostic technologies we also are, are developing, all still work within the same regulatory framework that we do with any other product, you know, no matter how it was developed. And I think that's a great thing, actually, for the pharmaceutical industry. It protects the patient and actually protects the companies as well. And I think there's a lot to be learned, actually, potentially, you know, from the pharmaceutical industry in that space. But um, I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to give evidence to the UK House of Commons Science Select Committee earlier this year. Also sort of showing them what's the potential benefits here. And let's make sure that as we, you know, think about potentially regulating AI, I also want to sort of stand up and say, you know, let's also not forget the patient. The possibilities now—what we can do in developing sort of digital diagnostics technologies, what we can do to help select the right drug for the right patient, and design much better medicines—I believe we have a moral duty actually to bring better drugs to the right patients, and hopefully as many drugs as possible. There's a um, a phrase we like to use here at Accentia, which is ultimately what we want to do is just turn drugs into an abundance. How can we actually sort of create a drug discovery process where? where we can move away from just only 40 drugs or so being approved by the FDA every year, how do we potentially you know, increase that by an order of magnitude? And the only way we can do that fundamentally is by changing the economics of our industry. And we believe we can do that through technology.
0: Yeah, that's a that's really interesting take on it. Um, are, are there any other, I mean, we're we're kind of pushing towards the end of our time, so I, I want to delve too deep into too many long tangents, but there, are there any other kind of ethical or safety um, concerns that, you know, that keep you up at night or that you've spent a lot of time thinking about uh, over the, the years of, of running this company?
1: I'm actually an AI optimist, actually, compared <laughs> to some of the pessimists you've heard in the past year. And I'm an optimist because it's all about how do we actually enable humans to be more productive? Um, I'll give you an example, you know, uh, we call our system central. you know, because we we recognize that what we're trying to do is to improve a productivity, of our drug discovery scientists. You know, we want to be in a position where people can join Accenture and they can see that they can discover multiple drugs in their careers. You know, you could be inside a big pharma company for 30 years and never get a drug to market. Um, So we see this as a way, I want to be in a world where we can help enable that every drug, I think, can be designed with AI. I think we now proved out that um, this potentially is a much more economical an efficient way to design drugs? And if that is the case, how then do we put the tools into the scientists' hands to allow more people to become great drug hunters? That I see ultimately is what we'd like to do. And that's why I am an optimist that as we start to really understand sort of the the new relationships now is the relationship between sort of human creativity and AI creativity and how actually those two things can work together to hopefully to the benefit of all of us.
0: So two more questions before we wrap up
1: one, um, you know, you've been
0: at this for so long, you really, you know, you had a long journey to get here. What advice do you have for young tech entrepreneurs, um, or would be entrepreneurs, you know, folks who are in school now learning about these things, having big ideas. Um, is there anything you wish you'd done differently, uh, or anything that you make sure you tell to, to young people in the space when you meet them?
1: So, uh, that's a great question. And, um, I probably have could do a whole new podcast just on <laughs> advice, perhaps to my younger self or advice to other sort of up and coming entrepreneurs. So the, um, i, I give you a, I give you a few sort of ideas how I think about it. You know, the really important one, actually, is to think about the difference between an invention and an innovation. Um, you know, one thing about being an academic, you often are inventing things you, or, or, or someone might be coming up with great new ideas. But the, the difference we really, see between an invention and innovation is really thinking about uh, what's the potential to solve problems, actually, and how do you position your invention so you can help, you know, solve real world problems and see a benefit from this. And sometimes the, the the problems that it can best solve are not the obvious ones, actually, to it. So I think that understanding of what you might call sort of market fit for your invention is, is key actually to sort of bringing it forward to be an innovation, you know. And um, how are you going to create sort of a, a 10x improvement? In which dimension is your technology going to help that, you know? The other way to think about it, as you start to explore this, is it's just as important for innovators to find, as I said earlier, your vanguard customers. You know, you're probably not the only one actually is frustrated with a particular area. And potentially there's other people out there you know, who are frustrated, looking to do something in a different way, and you potentially could provide the solution. So finding those maybe, you know, 1% of a customer base who are also advanced thinkers like yourself. That's important, actually. It's important then really to find those, those people who could believe in the future as equally as dissatisfied as you and actually bring those customers along then and show them how then you can solve their problems because the learning you get from applying your technology in a real world to working with customers is incredible feedback, you know, um, it's not all, we talked about earlier about evolution and we talk about the iterative methods of drug discovery. It's the same in business and it's the same with technology development. These iterative learning loops are actually is how then we start to develop and understand what we're doing is of value to someone or not. So that's what I would explore. Look for those opportunities actually to learn.
0: So last question, and I wish we did have more time because this has been just fascinating. Um, I can't do a podcast in late November without asking a little bit about, uh, what do you see coming for the next year? Um, especially in this kind of crazy AI moment. Um, what are some of the innovations that that you're looking forward to, uh, in the, in the space that you work in and, uh, how do you think the kind of larger conversation about AI is going to evolve, uh, in the coming year?
1: That's a great question. And, um, I'm not really one to sort of make sort of predictions really. I'm more of a, more a sort of person likes to sort of invent the future yourself, actually, rather than try really to predict it. I think it's the best way to to control events. I think we are at this incredible moment. We've seen sort of AI now move into the public imagination, like in a way it hasn't really done uh, uh, before. And um, and now it's you know we have tools which anyone can use effectively. I think what we are now starting to see is, as I said earlier, we've won the argument. I think. And now in 2024, I think we'll start to see sort of a greater understanding of adoption in the pharmaceutical industry. And how that adoption takes place is going to be interesting. But um, at the same time, our output, you know, our technology is only as good as our output. So we're also judged by the quality of the molecules, the quality of the drugs we can move forward with. From Accenture's point of view, we're incredibly excited now to um, be in a position where we can, you know, move drugs now into patient studies, and into the clinic. We'll be bringing sort of more molecules forward in 2024 and seeing how our partner molecules develop. That's going to be exciting. You know, ultimately, we want to see where potentially, you know, AI approved, AI design drugs start to be approved. And it doesn't matter who does that, actually, which company. What's important then is actually there's so many potential illnesses. There's enough for all of us to do uh, to move forward with that. But at the same time, you know, let's put this in context, particularly with pharma, is that we're also still dealing with, you might call it the biotech winter we've been in for the past uh, two years, where AI is having this moment right now. But biotech's been pretty tough, actually, the past two years. And, uh, and I think we're going to see then that um, companies, I think, really need to hone down and focus, you know, really deciding, you know, what do you want to be the best at? Because in this environment right now, you know, it's going to be companies. Some of them might run out of cash. Some of them are going to have difficulties, particularly some of private ones in raising as well. So I think actually we're going to start to see also a, a possible consolidation of a field, and it's going to be interesting to start to see whether or not we now start to see, you know, the AI winners emerging as well over the next uh, few years in this space. And you know, we're working very hard to ensure Accenture is that winner.
0: What do you think it will take for? Um, to move from the biotech winter to the biotech spring? I mean, wh- what's, what's going to happen that's going to kind of finally get us out of it?
1: Well, on a macro scale, uh, and we're very much driven by macro at the moment, it is interest rates, uh, unfortunately. But, you know, inflation is stabilizing. You know, 24, we expect it to stabilize and start to come down. Maybe 25, then we start to move, you know, from a macro environment, hopefully into uh, a better place. But that's also why at Accentia we're also, you know, also very interested in how we control that, um, how we actually ensure that we run a well-balanced business. And that's why you know, the business model we have is also working with our partners like Sanofi, BMS, Merck, as well as developing our own pipeline. So we have this concept of balance at Accentia; It's very core to the company. You know, one is sort of balance between machines and humans. Another is uh, balance in the molecules we make because we're trying to optimize against multiple sort of properties. And of course, it's balancing the business model itself and how do we de-risk the company that way. So this this concept of balance is actually pretty pretty core to the philosophy of Accenture.
0: Well, thanks so much for talking to me, Andrew. This has been uh, just fascinating, great to to have a chance to, to sit down and chat like this. And I can't wait to see what Accenture gets up to um, as time goes on.
1: Jonah, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure today.
0: That concludes this episode of the PharmaForum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening.